bring you back in here. Man, it's good to see you guys all today. Thanks for being here. Um, any readers in the room you love to read, like you've got a book? Okay. Uh, men that read. Let me see those hands. Men that read. Okay, there's a few. All right. Typically, men, men are not on that spectrum. Usually, we're like the ones that don't like to read. You know, uh, I, with the invention and onset of podcasts, I think that has made it even worse for men to want to read. Um, I'm curious, though, you know, as you begin to think about different books that you've read, I, I think about like the things we had to read in high school. You know, I remember reading The Lord of the Flies and those kind of things. Um, but we started, I started thinking like the top selling books of all times. So I'm curious, who's read these? Um, I've not read any of them. So I'm just going to tell on myself early, okay? I've not read any of these. So I'm curious if you've read any of these. Like the top-selling book of all time is uh, Don Quixote by Miguel de Cervantes. Anybody read that? Who's read it? Okay. Did you read it on your own or because it was required in school? Required. Required. Okay. There we go. That's telling. There you go. Thanks for your honesty. What about this one? Uh, A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Wasn't required reading in high school in Arkansas. What can I say? You know? It is the South. We probably read something like about pigs or something. Who knows? Uh, Who read this one? Let me see those hands again. Who read this? Quite a few of you read this one. Okay, what about the next one is The Lord of the Rings? Now, I said read this, not watch the movie. Who's read it? Okay, few. Very good. How many of you have watched the movie? A lot more. Very good. Uh, Or I'd never heard of this one, The Little Prince. I'm sorry, I don't know that one. Don't know that one. The Little Prince. Who's read it? Let's see. Amy, I am not alone in that one. You should turn around there. Not, not a lot of people have read that one. Okay, or the fifth one right here, Fifty Shades of Grey. Just kidding. Please don't answer if you've read that. I don't want to know. I was just teasing. I was, it, was, it was a joke. It's not... <laughs> really good writing. The action scenes were great. No. I'm just kidding. This was meant to be a joke. Uh, It's not on the top five. Actually, the the, the fifth book on the list is actually Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Who's read that one? Who's watched the movie? I'm about the same. Okay. Um, Yeah, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? So we see all these best-selling books and all this kind of stuff. But not a lot of those had been read by people in this room. That's fascinating. But to be honest, I was a little deceptive in the beginning Because I said, like, you know, Don Quixote was the top-selling book of all times. That's really not true. There is a book that sold more than that, which is the Bible. Did you guys know that? That the Bible is the top-selling book of all times. Um, It has sold, let's see, 500 billion, with a B, copies. 500 billion. Um, Don Quixote has actually sold 500 million So when you consider that, that's only half a billion. So the Bible has sold 1,000 times more copies than the next bestseller. That is fascinating stuff right there. Yes, it should hopefully try it. I did use a calculator. I had to. (laughs) I had to break out Excel because my calculator wouldn't go that big. So Um, yeah, so I, I do love to read. I, I love to read all kinds of things. And, you know, as I, as I was writing this message, um, sometimes I need to get out of the office to have a fresh place to write. And I love the West Des Moines Library. Anybody love the West Des Moines Library here? 
man, that top level, the second floor, and all those tables with the windows that overlook the nice little pond and the fountain and all that kind of stuff, it's a beautiful place to write. So as I sat here writing about books, I looked out across the library and saw all these, you know, thousands and thousands of books. Um, and I thought about, you know, especially with the Bible, you know, we'd all, maybe all of us here, because we're in church, we'd say the Bible's important. But I thought many of us have been impacted by books throughout our life. In fact, I wondered, has there been a book other than the Bible that made an impact on you? Something that you've read that was really significant to you? What was that, if you're willing to share? Not Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> Dolo? Animal Farm. Animal Farm, okay, yeah. Okay. Redeeming love. So we've got our nice Christian fiction back there, right? Is that what that is? Hardy boys. Yeah. They cage the animals at night. Now, see, I don't know that one. Okay, so I heard two. What was this one here? Abba's Child. Oh, very good. And what was this one over here? The Shack. Okay. Limiting God. Oh, man, you guys, somebody needs to be writing this down because, I, man, I may have a new book reading list. Not that I need any more added to my Kindle. Um, so you're, we're naming some books that were impacting. What was impacting about that book for you? What made it important or, or significant for you? Like The Shack. Sorry, I'm going to put you on the spot. Why was that important for you? Okay. Okay, so it was impacting with where you were in your spiritual journey and helped you kind of rediscover God. Who else? Abba's child? Uh, oh. The transparency of the office. Okay. Brenning Manning, a former Catholic priest who struggled with alcoholism and very real in his writings. It was very, uh, I read Ragamuffin Gospel by him. That was very good. Well, somebody else, what, another book that, Liz, you mentioned Redeeming Love back there. What, what was it about that that was good? Okay, so it made you feel, it brought you in, it makes you a part of the story. Those, that's all very good, very significant, very significant things. Well, today we're coming to the end of our deconstruction series. This is the last official message in the series. We've been talking about deconstruction when faith shatters. And today we're going to wrap it up by looking that is something very important to our faith, but is also something that has been the cause for many people to stumble and to even walk away from faith, and that is the Bible. Now, I realize that right there is probably even a controversial statement to say, how could the Bible cause somebody to stumble? Well, we're going to look at that in just a moment. But before we dive in, I do want to remind you that next week we're officially wrapping everything up. I've got a few people that are going to join me on the stage with a panel discussion to talk about deconstruction. But we want to see, has this series brought up questions for you that you would like us to engage with next week? And so if so, if you have uh, questions, you can text or email them to 515-518-0998 or just shoot them an email to me, Brent at ashworth.church, and we will do our best to work all those questions in. Remember, if you don't catch this now, it's in the weekly newsletter that goes out on Wednesday. But we want you to engage with this, and we want to know. I, I make no, I'm not under any uh, delusion that I have explained everything perfectly every Sunday. And so if there's things that you thought, hmm, I wonder, 
shoot it in and give us the opportunity to respond. And so I, I like it when we do this, and we want to give you guys that opportunity. So take advantage of that. Now, as I said, the Bible is the foundation of our faith in a lot of ways. It points us to where we need to go. It, it instructs us in a lot of ways. But on the flip side, the Bible has also been the cause for many people to stumble or to walk away from faith. In fact, let me just ask you, have you ever known anyone that has walked away from faith because of the Bible? Yeah? Absolutely. And there's a multitude of reasons, and we're going to look at some of them, but, you know, it's, it's interesting when we consider this because we don't always think about this. In fact, it'd be easy for us to get very defensive about that because we could go, well, what do you mean? The Bible, it's God's Word. You can't be, you know, you, this, this is true, it's right. You can't, you know, because you stumble and walk away. It's what it's supposed to be. But it's true, and when we engage people in those conversations, we find Maybe if we're sympathetic or empathetic or understanding, we maybe can see why it led them to where, where they did. I was reading this week, and I was, uh, came across the story about Bart Ehrman. Anybody heard of him before? He's an author. Uh, he's actually a professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina. He grew up in an Episcopal church, but as a teenager, he became an evangelical. Um, he went to Moody Bible College, kind of the mecca of evangelical study, uh, and Wheaton College. I mean, he just got both of them right there in Chicago, and he received his bachelor's degree there. For his post-grad work, he went to Princeton to study biblical languages, where he received his Master's of Divinity and his Ph.D. But it was during this study that he began to deconstruct. Um, you see, as he began to follow Jesus, he believed that the Bible was perfect, that it was free from error completely. But as he dug in, he began to see some things that were discrepancies. And as he began to see some discrepancies, it began to shake his faith, because if this is perfect, how could it possibly have discrepancies? And what it did is he ended up leaving the evangelical faith. For a while, he returned to the Episcopal Church, and he eventually left faith altogether, now describing himself as an, as an agnostic atheist. Now, he's written many books on this, and to his credit, he is very willing, in a, in a, and I think in an appropriate way, to engage Christians in conversations and to talk about his deconstruction and his problems with faith and these kind of things. In fact, he's been on a podcast. I've heard him. Uh, there's a podcast from the UK called Unbelievable. And he's been on there several times. To uh, that, that podcast always has like a person of a Christian or an evangelical and maybe somebody that's not. And they come together and they have robust debate and discussion. And he's done that several times. But do you know what the challenge was for him? The one thing that like, he points to that says this was the discrepancy that he couldn't get over, it's Mark chapter 1, the beginning of Mark's gospel, verses 2 and 3. Let me read it to you. It's on the screen as well. God, Mark's gospel says this. It says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. You know what the problem is? The first part of that, it's not from Isaiah. It's from Malachi. And you look at that, and if you think this is perfect, you kind of go, well, did he make a mistake? Who made the mistake? 
Did Mark mess up? Did God mess up? Now, see, is anybody getting nervous right now? I am. I'm very nervous because you look at this and you go, who messed up here? And from one perspective, as somebody that often speaks and puts words ahead of my thoughts, anybody else that way? I understand that I could say, oh, Amy said this, and I could say something that Matthew said and then follow it up by something that Amy said, and I just kind of got ahead of myself. But if we have a certain understanding of the Bible, if we believe certain things about the Bible, there's very little room for this kind of thing. Is it wrong? Did Mark make a mistake? I don't, you know, these are the things that led Bart Ehrman to just go, I'm done. And this is just one example. In fact, you can dig around a little bit more and you can find other what we might call discrepancies or challenges that the Bible that have led others to question their faith. Whether it's the violence that is attributed to God in the Old Testament, that's a big one. People don't understand that. Uh, Maybe it's the different eyewitnesses' accounts of different stories where there's details that are changed from story to story. Or maybe it's even Paul's confusion. In 1 Corinthians, he's writing this letter to this church, and I love this. He's addressing their division and their disunity, and Paul says this. He's on the screen. He says, I thank God that I did not baptize any of you, well, except Crispus and Gaius. Oh, so no one of you can say you were baptized in my name. Oh, wait. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. And beyond that, I don't remember. I don't know if I baptized any other of you or not, you know. And so <laughs> I love this because this makes Paul very relatable to me. Because I would say that. Hey, Ashworth family, I didn't baptize any of you. Well, except maybe you and maybe you, I don't know, you know. And so I I find it very relatable. But again, as you look at that, how how do you resolve that and understand that if you have a certain view of the Bible? You know, um, and whether it's Paul here or maybe it's even trying to understand how to read Genesis 1 and 2, uh-oh. Or trying to make sense of the story of King David. Now, maybe you've never heard this before, where he takes a census of his army. He counts the number of men he's got. And in 2 Samuel 24, it says God told him to do it. But then you read the same story in 1 Chronicles 21, and it says Satan told him to do it. Do you know those things are in the Bible? And you see, when we're told, well, it's perfect, that can be problematic. Because then what we have to do is we have to put on our leotard, unitard, and we have to start doing some gymnastics to try to make it all fit. And then we find ourselves, if you go online, um, you'll find books like the Big Book of Bible Difficulties or the Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties or today's handbook for solving today Bible difficulties. You find yourself trying to figure out how do we resolve these things. And I say it kind of jesting. Are we nervous right now? Does this, even bringing these things up, kind of make us a little bit nervous where you're thinking, okay, Brent, where are you going with this thing? What do you got to say? You see, because what I find in with the Bible, and we love to do this as Christians, we fall into this dualistic trap all the time. It's, we, just, we just fall right into it. And the Bible is no different. And so we find ourselves being pulled to one side or the other. 
And on one side, you have this very conservative or even fundamental side where you have to believe everything in the Bible. And it's not just you have to believe it, you have to believe it literally as if it's all prescriptive in how you live your life. It's like everything you do has to be by the letter of the Bible. And, and this view removes any nuance of the Bible. I remember years ago, there was an author, her name was Rachel Held Evans, and she wrote, what was it called, The Year of Biblical Womanhood, where she actually took the Bible and she tried to live out all the things it said a woman should do for an entire year. And, and that's kind of, she was doing it to just kind of prove that this wasn't how the Bible was written or intended. But when we take it this way, we, we, we remove the nuance of the Bible. We fail to even take into pl- to account the genres of the Bible, that this isn't one book. It's 66 different books that have been compiled. It's a stinking library for us. You know, and in that, there's things like parables that Jesus told. And they're not actual stories. We know that the parable of the Good Samaritan didn't actually happen, but Jesus used it to make a point. Or we see things like metaphor or allegory or revelation. God help us. The apocalyptic literature of revelation where what we want to do is we want to open this up and go, okay, here's revelation. And let me get my newspaper. Yep, that's it. No, that's not even how you read apocalyptic literature. And so we turn the Bible in this view into God's little instruction book. And maybe you've done this. God, I have a big decision to make. I don't know what to do. The Lord Almighty has revealed this in my hearing. Till your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for, says the Lord Almighty. Now, you guys, I want you to know that is as random as you could find right there. That, there is no marker here. There's no underlining here. But that's how we treat the Bible sometimes. You see the problem with it? It's a little bit of a problem, right? But then on this side as well, and I, and I pick on this side because this is kind of how I grew up, how my understanding of things was. But the danger with this side is also that everything in the Bible carries equal weight. And so what that usually looks like is we take the teachings of Jesus, love your enemy, turn the other cheek, and we want to balance it out with the Old Testament teaching of go and destroy your enemies. And we really kind of go, well, those are kind of equal. They're not. But we kind of go, well, okay, so I'll, be, I'll love my enemies sometimes, and then sometimes when I'm just fed up, I'll beat them down. And that's the problem. But there's an equally dangerous opposite side of this on this dualistic understanding of the Bible. And really, that's the more liberal side of this. Because on that liberal side, the Bible has no authority. It's kind of optional. It's, it's a nice collection of stories, but it's not meant for us to really follow in any way. We can just kind of look at it. And everything in it can become negotiable. You don't like what it says? Okay, throw it out. Just ignore it. I mean, I actually have known people, good, good Christian people, who would read something. For example, they would read 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul says, let your women keep silent in the churches. And instead of reading that, trying to understand maybe what is the context and how that is and how could God use that, they go, I just don't like that, so I'm going to tear that page out of my Bible. Well, that's not a good solution either. You know, and so we have to be careful. You know, if miracles don't fit with how we see the world, we reason them away. 
And this view does. It strips the authority from the Bible. And, and we, we often try in this view to constantly reinterpret the Bible to match our current political or societal ideology. It really becomes a dangerous place to be. And to be honest, I just hate dualism most of the time. I hate being forced to pick one of these two sides because I don't find a place for me in either of those places. Which leads to the question, then, what do we believe about the Bible? Or what should we believe about the Bible? And first, what I want you to know is that it's this. The Bible is special. The Bible is unique. The Bible is incredible. In fact, um, it claims to be unique. And I get it. You have to be careful because sometimes we'll say, well, the Bible says this about itself. Well, that's called circular reasoning. And we can't get trapped in that. That'd be like me saying, I am the best pastor ever. Why? Well, I said it. That's why. Well, that doesn't make any sense. But what does the Bible even say about itself? I think that is significant. And so we turn to the book of 2 Timothy, and you find Paul writing here to his protege, Timothy. And he makes this statement about the Bible. He says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, Right away as we jump into this, we have to pause for a moment and ask a very significant question, and it's this. What in the world was Paul referring to when he said all Scripture? Because when he wrote this, probably sometime between, what, 50 and 70, I didn't look it up, so it's somewhere between 50 and 70 A.D., you know, um, the New Testament canon, the books that we have that make up our New Testament, was not compiled yet. The apostles were writing letters, they were getting circulated, but they had not been compiled into a single book. What was he talking about? Well, I think very clearly he's talking mainly about the Old Testament. That's what he's referring to as the Scripture. Um, and then we need to remember, too, that as he's talking about all Scripture being God-breathed, it wasn't like we have it today. It wasn't like I'd come to your house and find your scrolls of your Old Testament rolled up somewhere. That didn't happen. You got those at the temple. You got those at the synagogue and where the man of God would unscroll it and then read it to you. Or you'd go to school and you would study it. You didn't keep these things at your house. But these things would be taught from childhood. and You'd memorize lots of it. And parents would have continued that faith education in the home. So what does this mean for the New Testament then? Does that mean Paul's not talking about that? I, don't, I wouldn't go that far because there are some evidences in the New Testament that Peter and Paul both kind of understood that what the other was writing was words of God, that God was still speaking to people and God was leading these people to write these things down. And just as through millennia before where God had spoken to his people, and keep in mind that God was speaking long before anybody wrote anything down. But then God moved on people to write it down. And as they wrote it down, these things would continue to be you know, shared and processed together in community. And the Old Testament would go through kind of this weaning process to say what was and what wasn't the Word of God. And the community together would kind of discern how God was doing. And I think that's exactly what we see in the New Testament. In fact, you know, 2 Peter 3.16, you can look it up later, that Peter's talking about how Paul is writing the words of God. Um, and then, you know, another reason I think the New Testament is considered this is because I think 
I just have to look and see how people for the ages have gone through such painstaking processes to preserve, to protect, to respect these writings, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. People that were closest to the events saw these writings as special, as unique. And finally, I believe that this is part of what the New Testament as well is because of what it does. What does the New Testament do? What is the point of the New Testament? Well, there's a lot written in there. It's talking about unity and how to function and how to be a church and how to follow Jesus. But when you strip all that away, the most important thing that the whole Bible, but specifically the New Testament too, what it does is it points us to Jesus. And Jesus is the key. He's the key to everything. When you get to John, John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, what does he say? He says, in the beginning was the Word. Isn't that interesting? In the beginning was the Word. Jesus was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And right here, it, it highlights for me the significance of what we have in the Bible, but it also begins to shift my mind and how I should see the Bible. Because what we see here is Jesus is being called the very Word of God, the embodiment of God's desire to communicate with His creation. In fact, even in Hebrews chapter 1, we've been in Hebrews quite a bit through this series, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. It says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through prophets, and at many times and in various ways, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom all, uh, also he made the universe. And where some people might look at this book and say, yeah, but you know what? You can say it's special and unique, but it's outdated and it's not important because we have Jesus. I would say exactly the opposite. I would say because it's because of this book that we know Jesus. That's the significance here. And instead of diminishing what this book has to say, it reminds us of the book's uniqueness and just absolute importance. And Paul tells us why back in that 2 Timothy passage. He says this book is unique because it is God-breathed. Some translations would use inspired, but God-breathed is really, it's a unique word. It's really not used anywhere else. It, I mean, but think about what that means. God-breathed. That this is the words of God. He's inspiring this book, moving authors along to reveal himself to his creation, to reveal his love for his creation. And we've got to be careful because what it doesn't mean is that God is saying, hey, Paul, listen up. Here's need you to take a memo. Dear church at Corinth, dear church at Corinth. That didn't happen that way. The passage I quoted earlier shows exactly how God breathed these things. He allowed the authors and their personality and who, who they were to come across and their context, where they were, what they were dealing with, to be a part of what they were writing. And God was inspiring and speaking to these people even long before they wrote anything down. I said that earlier. And when we read the Bible... From the opening pages of creation to the final act of new creation in Revelation, what we see is God in Christ revealing himself to the world. And what the Bible does perfectly is point us to Jesus. 
And when I say that, what it means is we have to be careful then how we're going to try and use this book. It is not the fortune cookie. It is not the fortune cookie, as I did earlier, to randomly open. I mean, I'd be in trouble if I was really looking for counsel and that's what I read. I'd be like, I guess I'm going to die. Um, but it also reminds us that the Bible, as important as it is, is not the third person of the Trinity. I mean, you'd get the idea from some folks that the Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. That is not the way it is. And while the Bible contains lots of stories and a lot of information, as one author I read this week put it, the true purpose of the Bible isn't to be an encyclopedia of God facts. Rather, it is to be a portal for engagement with God. And we have to remember that the Bible is not the way of salvation. It can show us the way, but it isn't the way because the Bible tells us who the way is. That would be Jesus. He says it himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here's what I want us to understand is that often, as I say, we're asking the Bible to do things that the Bible may not have been intended to do. And we're not the first people to have this struggle or this challenge. Because even as Jesus is dealing with the religious leaders and the Pharisees, in John chapter 5, he makes this incredible statement to them about how they were using the Bible. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You see, the Bible is this incredible book. It's amazing. It's unique. But it can become an idol that overshadows the exact thing that it's intending to do, which is to point us to Jesus. And we can either fall into the trap of elevating it and idolizing it or ignoring it and, and diminishing it. But there's somewhere in between. And that's what we want to find. And when it comes to deconstruction, the real question about the Bible isn't just how do you read it or even how was it written, but it's whether what we do with it once we're done reading it. That's the bigger question. Now, the word I wrote in my notes here was, are we willing to submit? And I realize that word submit, man, we love, ooh, ooh just make sure makes you want to stand up a little bit and be like, whew, I don't like that word. Nobody wants to submit. I've told you guys before, I'm the ultimate contrarian. Just tell me to do something is the exact way to get me to not to do it. But when it comes to how we live, we all submit to something. We all give authority in our lives to something, whether it's our faith or our social group or a political group or whatever. But when we go back to what Paul was writing about in 2 Timothy, what we see is, is that Paul, and you could even say all the apostles and Jesus, they saw the Bible as not just something to believe, but actually something to shape our behavior, to, to guide us in how to live, not to give us the fortune cookie, but to guide us, to, to, to show us how we're to live. Notice what Paul says when he says that all Scripture is God-breathed. He says it is useful. It is useful, not just for growing in knowledge, not just so you can pass a Bible test. It's useful for teaching, for rebuking. Uh-oh, don't like that word. For correcting. Don't care for that word either. Training in righteousness. Okay, I like that one. 
so that we may be thoroughly equipped for what in living the way God wants us to, be, to, to live. You see, the end all of Scripture isn't just good bedtime stories, but to shape and mold how we live so that we grow and become more and more like Jesus, which is why Jesus tells us to pay attention to the condition of our hearts. Paul often talks about this. He says, take off the evil things, the old self, falsehood, sexual immorality, greed. And he says, put on compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. You know, that's what he says. It's about how we're living. How do we look like Jesus? Theologian and New Testament scholar John Stott once said this. He says, the hallmark of authentic evangelicalism is not subscription, but submission. That is, it is not whether we subscribe to an impeccable formula about the Bible, but whether we live in practical submission to what the Bible teaches, including an advanced resolve to submit whatever it may later be shown to teach. You know, as a pastor, one of the, my, my favorite things sometimes is to hear people say, you know, well, I just, I just want to go deeper. I just want to go deeper, you know, and people will leave the church because preaching's not deep enough. To which I go, garbage. The problem for most people is never that we need to go deeper. The problem may be that we haven't learned to implement and live out the things we already know. We haven't submitted to what the Bible is teaching to show us how to live like Jesus. Deeper is not the problem. Seeing the Bible as authority is. And as I read this week, it says, It's not hard to find people who know the Bible well, intimately even, and yet seem to be largely untouched by its message. And that's what Jesus was talking about in John 5. When we submit to the authority of Jesus through the Bible, we will be faced with our own humanity, our own failings, our own sin. And then we have to determine how we'll respond. Will we change? Will we repent? Will we go a different direction? Or will we resist? You see, the temptation for us is to just shut that down. We don't want that. In fact, one author this week said, changing the world would be fine, but changing my life is not part of the deal. <laughs> and isn't that how we react? I can't help but wonder if our struggle with the Bible, trying to make it something it's not meant to be, holding it to a level of modern scholarship that it was never meant to be, that we do something incredibly tragic. We miss the beauty of the Bible. We want this thing to be a theology book and an instruction manual for life. And it, let me just tell you, this is God-breathing to us, the author of life, breathing life into these pages to meet you and me. It's another example where heaven breaks into earth to reveal God, to remind us of the God who loves us so much that he died for us and to point us towards Jesus. And we lose that when we try to make this something that it's not. You know, last week we talked about this mystical nature of faith. It is mystical, and the Bible's part of that mysticism. It's creating holy ground for us to connect with the Almighty God, the transcendent God who made us, and the imminent God who is here with us right now in this community. You know, so how we view the Bible is so important. Because it's going, to, it's going to impact how we, how we use it. You see, if, if we need the Bible to be certain things or to say certain things or to reinforce certain theologies or behaviors, I just want to tell you, you can find a way to do that. Yeah. <laughs> In the 1800s, when 
slavery, abolition was coming around. Do you want to know what the Southern Baptists used to justify slavery? It's right here. You can get this to say just about anything you want it to say. And we have to be careful with that. But when we are willing to allow it, through the spirit of truth, through Jesus and his teachings, to shape and transform us, that's when we really embrace the beauty of it. And I, and I want to tell you, this applies to both ends of the spectrum. I just I, Conservative, liberal, doesn't matter. We want it to be what we want it to be, but we have to figure out, are we asking the Bible to mold to us, or are we willing to find ourselves to be transformed through it? I think that's critical. I also think if we're not careful, we can find this to become one of the tools to just beat people over the head with, and it's not meant to do that. The Bible can convict on its own. Um, but I think what God is asking us to do is to see this as him revealing himself to us. And if we come with open hands and open hearts, we find the Bible doing exactly what it needs to do, changing us, shaping us into the image of Jesus, becoming little Jesuses, living, breathing citizens of the new kingdom of God, both here and now. And if we insist on assuming that we've got it 100% right, Finally, after 2,000 years, we are the chosen generation. We haven't misread it. We haven't misinterpreted anything. I just want you to know there's going to be a generation right behind us waiting to show us just how wrong we've been. You kind of see the foolishness of that statement. But how often do we carry that mentality in instead of humility? You see, I'm convinced that we can get so caught up in words like infallible or inerrancy that we miss it. I will affirm I believe the Bible is infallible in what it teaches, and I believe in the inerrant word of God, and his name is Jesus. But I also know that what am I, when I want to say that the Bible is perfect, what I'm really trying to communicate is my interpretation of the Bible is perfect. We have to stop trying to make the Bible do and be something that it's not. Don't miss what I'm saying. I love the Bible. There are times when I read it and it is so life-giving. There are also times I read it and I go, where are you, God? But that's the beauty of it. It's God breaking forth and communicating to us and inviting us into his story. And what I want, I, I, I don't want you to miss what I'm saying. I want you to fall in love with the Bible all over again. But I don't want it to be, oh, the Bible, because what I want you to do is fall in love with the Bible because it helps you fall more deeply in love with Jesus. That's what it's about. So as we close, have you lost the beauty and the wonder of the Bible? Has the, your deconstruction journey left any room for this antiquated book? I hope today you can see again God's desire for why he left us this is to reveal himself because he loves you. He's pursuing you. He's passionate about you. You know, for the last four weeks, we've been looking at deconstruction. And I just want you to know that regardless of where you are, I want you to know that Jesus is going to be with you as you go through this. As we move the Jenga pieces of our faith, as you doubt, as you wonder what to do with the Bible, God isn't sitting there mad at you. He's with you. 
He's ready to engage with you on the journey. As somebody reminded me this week, we're told there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law, which brings death, but the Spirit gives freedom and life. So I'm going to ask the